Um, some of you know, most of you know my own story of faith. Uh, you know that uh, if you've been around the story very long, you know that there was a season of my life, about 13 years, when I wasn't professing what, what I call biblical Christianity. I'll explain a little bit more about what that means, but even though I'm a preacher's kid and I was raised in the church when I was in college, I renounced biblical Christianity, and I still, for most of the next season of my life, called myself uh, a Christian, but uh, while clenching my teeth and usually adding some kind of qualifier, like progressive or liberal or uh, intelligent, <laughs> all kinds of qualifiers that, that I would put in front of that word just to make sure I was distinguishing myself from the Christian's people were, you know, hearing about on the news and, and seeing out in the world. So um, the, the reality was I, I wasn't a Christian at all um, because the baseline requirement of Christianity is belief in this supernatural reality of God raising Jesus from the tomb, right, physically. And, and I didn't believe in any of the supernatural claims made by Christians and the claims Christians are supposed to believe. And so I was, I guess what you call a godless Christian or a, or a Christian atheist or some, some kind of a paradox is what I was in that season of my life. And I know a lot of people like that now, actually. It's, it's actually more common than you might think. I was a cultural Christian, you know? And if you asked me during that season of my life what I believed in, I would have told you uh, that I believe in love. Cheesy, I know, but that's what I would have told you. I believe in love. I believe in peace. I believe in justice, inclusion, Tolerance, kindness, kindness was everything to me back then. And, and then if you followed up with a sharp question like, well, what is it about those things that is in any way exclusively or explicitly Christian? I would have looked at you like a deer in the headlights because there was nothing exclusive, exclusively or implicitly Christian about those things set apart from, you know, the same ideals that you can find in every other a quarter of the, of the world. And, and that was the point to me. That wasn't a, a knock against my worldview. That was actually the whole point. Because to me, in those days, my Christianity was just a small part of who I was. And more importantly, my Christianity could be blended into this uh, worldview that was in, uh, inherently open and tolerant of other faiths to the extent that other faiths were just as valid as mine and just as truthful as mine. That's what I thought it meant to be a good Christian. So things like love and tolerance and inclusion and, and kindness, those things are things that anybody can get excited about. That's something that Buddhists and Muslims and, and Taoists and Hindus and Jews and just about any, even benevolent atheists can get behind love and kindness. And in my mind, we were all on different roads that were going to the same place and that place could be defined as a more loving world, a kinder world. That's what I was in it for. And that worked for me for a while um, until, until it, it all fell apart for me. And I realized I was living a double life because I said I wanted kindness, but I had no reason to be kind. No objective reason. I had no objective standard to measure kindness at all. How do you know you're becoming a more kind person? I had no idea. And I wasn't. I was becoming more decrepit, more isolated, more lonely, and more addicted. And I had no way out. But then in 2013, I, I had this experience. I don't want to bore you, but it changed my life forever. It shook my ontological foundations beneath my feet. I met Jesus in a powerful way, and I had to come to terms with the truth claims he made about his life. 
I realized in that moment in 2013, I had to, if I was going to take Jesus more seriously, like I was committed to doing after that experience, I had to take his words more seriously and not just the words that I already agreed with in my preconceived worldview. I had to take the stuff that I skipped over, the red letters I didn't like, the stuff that just seemed judgy, you know, like the part where he says, I'm coming back to judge all of you. (laughs) That seemed a little judgy to me. I don't know about you, but that seemed judgy to me. And so I had to reconcile myself to those claims, right? Because that Jesus was absolutely foreign to me, even though I was raised in church. My whole life was spent in church. I'm a preacher's kid. I'm a preacher's grandkid. I'm a preacher's great-grandkid. And those are three different guys, by the way. I'm, I'm from East Texas, not Arkansas. So that, that's, just want to make that clear, okay? So I'm a, I'm a fourth-generation preacher is what I'm saying. And I grew up in church my whole life, and I still was not acquainted with that Jesus because the kind of Christianity I grew up with uh, was, it was Methodist, which in the late 20th century kind of meant something different than Methodist was meant to mean when it began. And by that time, what Methodist meant was basically not Southern Baptist, all right? So I think the philosophy of Methodist preachers and parents was, we'll leave the scare tactics to the Southern Baptists and Pentecostals. We'll let them do all the hellhouse stuff and all the, you know, ooh, he's coming to get you, you know, and we'll just make sure our kids know that they're loved. So I was well acquainted with the love of God, but I had never heard of or thought about the, the wrath of God. I knew all about his grace, but nothing about his truth. And, and that was, you know, for better or worse, how, how I was raised. And, and that worked. It was a nice philosophy. It worked until it didn't, right? You can imagine how just having half of the story only serves you for a while. And then, uh, again, it, it kind of um, fell apart. So uh, what I didn't realize then is that I was part of a, a I was part of a process at that point. The Methodist church I grew up in was part of a process that had been intentionally sanitizing Jesus to redeem him from not just the Baptists and the uh, Pentecostal types, but I I was part of a a process that had been in the works for generations, trying to, you know, even as good, well-intentioned wasps were trying to redeem Jesus from generations of... Catholic influence that had, if I can be honest, made Jesus seem about as weird and awkward as a person can be. Have you seen his Catholic baby pictures? All right, looks like a grown man baby. He's balding. He's balding. It's just, he's got weird looking red hair and the other, it's just a weird Jesus that the Catholics were all about. And so I think there was an effort to make Jesus more approachable to people and a little more normal. And that's, that's as uh, generous an interpretation as I can give about this phenomenon. But now I have an even more, I think, nuanced perspective. My perspective now is that there's been more to that movement to normalize and sanitize and gentrify Jesus. It's not just about making him more approachable to skeptics and unbelievers. There is something at work in our culture right now to try and convince Christians that we should neuter the message and mission of Jesus so that he fits more neatly in with other worldviews and other religions and other truth claims so that there's nothing exclusive or special or different about Jesus. There's nothing better about Jesus. He's just one of many options. One of many equal options that we can choose from or not choose from 
as long as we're all in agreement that we're living under one umbrella, this human tolerance umbrella that, that if you're younger than me, you know exactly what I mean ever since you were in high school and college, you've been told that it's more important to be truthful than it is to tell, I mean, it's more important to be uh, tolerant than it is to tell the truth. And these are the altars being built before us. These are the kinds of altars that people are being uh, coerced to uh, bend the knee to. And so um, that's, that's kind of what I want to talk about today without seeming like overly alarmist, without taking on a victim mentality. I want to talk about what it means for us today as believers, or if you're considering becoming a believer, what it would mean to live faithfully as a, a particular kind of Christian, one who believes in the claims that Jesus made about himself, the claims that set him apart from all other religions and paths and truth claims. How can we Stay faithful even when the world is giving us every reason to blend him in. So we've talked about this kind of syncretism in uh, past sermons in this series, but also we've talked about it a lot in our Revelation Bible study. Syncretism is this effort, this effort to bring all worldviews into one, uh, to blend all these exclusive truth claims together so that we can all live in this uh, illusion of false tolerance and unity. And what you realize when you study history, and especially when you study the, the biblical history and the theology of it, is that we have a spiritual enemy, and there's just a weird pattern that he has. I mean, Satan is nothing if not predictable, and he always does the same thing. Ever since the Tower of Babel, when he tried to bring the whole world before, you know, the same tower in one city, instead of spreading out and being diverse culturally to bring the world under one banner, he does the same thing over and over and over and over again, and he's doing it now. And we get to make our choice between this world he's creating and between the claims that Jesus made about himself. We get to choose where our loyalties lie, all right? So today, uh, we're gonna be talking about this, uh, part six in this series called Another in the Fire, Trusting God to do the impossible. And today we're going to talk about how to remain steadfast even when they throw you to the lions, which I know sounds super dramatic. <laughs> so I just want to, make, I want to make it clear. I don't foresee a future where any of us are thrown to the literal lions, all right? Can I hear an a, a exhale of relief? Ah, okay, good. Whew. If you have kids and they're hearing this, I just want to be clear. I don't think they're going to be throwing any of us if in 21st century America to literal lions. But uh, that doesn't mean that believers who hold fast to the truth claims of Jesus will not feel the pressure and aren't going to be under increasing and immense pressure to assimilate to this culture that is emerging a culture of tolerance and inclusion and, and so-called love uh, to assimilate or else and refusing to bend the knee to any cultures, idols, or gods, including our own, will always come at a cost. It's going to cost you something. Allegiance to one God instead of many always comes at a cost. So let's get right into it, okay? I wanna take you back a little history lesson, just to, as a refresher for some of you, if you've been here in past weeks. In 587 B.C., the armies of Babylon sacked the city of Jerusalem, absolutely destroyed it, flattened the holy city. 
And in the aftermath of that conquest, Babylonian officials took back to Babylon a select number of Israelites. They took the best of the best, the cream of the crop. They took the the movers and the shakers in that society, government officials and business leaders, and they took them into Babylon to live as exiles for 50 years. This is what is known as the Babylonian exile. And we know that Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet, was part of that. Daniel, who we talked about last week and we're talking about today, was part of that exile, okay? So when Daniel got to Babylon, he was hand-selected. He was like the best of the best. He was the cream of the cream of the crop because he rose to the top and the Babylonian official says, we want this guy and a few others to train to become royal advisors in Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar. He was hand-selected. And so from the very beginning, Daniel stood out um, as he was carted off to Babylon. Uh, Two years ago, Giovanna and I, my wife uh, Giovanna and I, had an opportunity to travel to Berlin. We went to Europe for the first time. We went to Berlin and we were walking around Berlin and this museum called the Pergamon Museum. And and, um, we stumbled upon this massive structure called the Ishtar Gate. This is a picture of the Ishtar Gate, um, the actual construction uh, or reconstruction of the Ishtar Gate. These are mostly the, the original stones as they were excavated in Babylon and rebuilt in Berlin in this, uh, in this uh, museum. And that's a selfie, just to prove that Gio and I were there, I guess. I don't know why I put that up there. So uh, we, we, we were there, all right? So uh, Nebuchadnezzar built this gate and named it, dedicated it to the goddess Ishtar, who was the goddess of sex and fertility and love and beauty, all right? This is not the best image of Ishtar, but most images of Ishtar are not church appropriate, okay? So uh, she liked to uh, wear her birthday suit, apparently, because every image of Ishtar is of her naked uh, and usually a naked and curvy body, and she's like uh, clenching her breasts usually, and she's usually surrounded by a bunch of naked dudes. And uh, so this is the best that I could do, all right? Uh, This is Ishtar. She was one of King Nebuchadnezzar's favorite deities, all right. Her cult was led by a group of priests um, called Gala, I think. And these priests were mostly men, but they dressed like women. And they took feminine names, even though they were still biologically men. And we know this, again, because their male anatomy was on full display in most images of Ishtar. That, those were the men who were the priests in her temple. Now, uh, something called a sacred prostitution was very common to honor Ishtar. Young women and girls uh, would uh, serve a period of time, mandatory for a time, it was mandatory, period of time, in the temple of Ishtar, and Babylonian men would come and offer a financial gift to Ishtar, and in exchange for that financial gift, they were able to enjoy, uh, let's call it conjugal rights with a young woman or girl right there in front of the shrine to Ishtar, right there in the temple, all right? So that is what was going on in in Babylon. And the only reason I I bring up this gate to Ishtar, uh, this this, uh, shrine to Ishtar, this gate, is because historians are almost certain this is the gate that Daniel physically walked through. And that's the cool part. When you're you're in front of this, you're like, Daniel walked through this gate, just like I'm walking through this gate, as did many other figures in the Old Testament times. I can only imagine what it must have been like for Daniel to walk through this massive five-story tall bright blue gate with lions 
painted on it, and as well as other animals, but lions especially. Lions were the patron animal of the goddess Ishtar. That's why it's, this wall is covered um, with lions, all right? So um, we, we learned uh, last week about Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to talk a little bit more about Daniel today. Daniel was um, inducted into this program where he was learning to be a, uh, an advisor, and that meant he was initiated into the dark arts of Babylon. He was learning Babylonian mysticism. He was learning Babylonian astrology and all kinds of other uh, uh, doctrines. And as we'll see in this passage, Daniel stood out from day one. He was just an exceptional person. It was his godliness, his faithfulness that really caused him to stand out. But as we're going to see with Daniel, anytime you are, your godliness is on display because of your faithfulness to the one true God, you're going to stand out and it might as well be a target on your back in one way or another. Okay, that's what happened to Daniel. This is from Daniel chapter six, verses three to 13 and verse 16, okay? A little bit of a long passage, so get your listening ears ready. This is important. This is what it says. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps, satraps were provincial governors in Babylon, officials, uh, by his exceptional qualities, that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. They wanted to find something wrong with him, with his actions, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So, these, uh, these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, so we have a new king, Nebuchadnezzar died, we have Darius now. May King Darius live forever. The royal, blah, 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 have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or any human during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. So the king was part of the pantheon of gods in, in Babylon. So for 30 days, it was going to be all him, all about him. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. He liked the idea of the sound of him being the one, uh, you know, worshipped for 30 days. That sounds pretty cool. So King Darius was all about it. So when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room when the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed. Daniel gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So the law didn't change Daniel. He gave thanks just as he had before. Then these men went as a group, and they found Daniel praying and, they, and asking God for help. So they went to the king and asked and spoke to him about his royal decree. Didn't you publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So they said to the king, Daniel, one of these exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing, he prays three times a day, still. And so the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. All right. Now, this from any rational point of view, is uh, religious persecution. Daniel is being persecuted for his religious beliefs, right? Even if you're not you know, on board with the Bible, it's probably obvious to you. But I just wanna, I want to point out that if you look at this situation from the perspective of a Babylonian 
insider. Someone who has bought into the lie that we can give up any notion of objective truth and we can just choose and pick our own gods and goddesses and idols and, and still all come together under this banner called Babylon that brings us together um, in spite of truth. If you look at the world that way, then what happened to Daniel was not about religious persecution. What happened to Daniel has to do with his refusal to become one of us. It had to do with his rejection of us. We're only being intolerant of Daniel because Daniel was intolerant first. Otherwise, we're very tolerant people. Okay? So that's what's happening here. And that's an important distinction to make because the Babylonians, were they here today, they would say, look, we weren't telling Daniel not to worship his God. We were telling Daniel to worship his God as one of us. Is it really that hard to hit pause on your relationship with Yahweh for 30 days, Daniel? Does the king not mean enough to you to just, you know, just check out with your God for 30 days? He's gonna be there when you get back. What's the big deal, Daniel? Daniel, you don't have to be thrown to the lions. Just, just stop being so different. Stop standing out. Stop thinking your God is special or different from ours or better than ours, okay? So, so Daniel was disobedient to the narrative, disobedient to the cultural status quo, and, and that's why he paid the price. And this is a, a pattern that we see again and again, and we're starting to see it in our culture that's emerging now. That's why I'm preaching this message, because there's always a price to pay for such disobedience. Whenever people are allowed to, or let me first say, whenever people are compelled to come together under one banner of false identity, forsaking a concept of objectivity and truth, for, for the purposes of tolerance and unity, and in so doing, people are encouraged to redefine important terms like tolerance and kindness and love. I mean, just imagine what the definition of love was in Babylon. The goddess of love had sacred prostitution in her temple. Love wasn't a true definition of love. Love had turned into lust. It had turned into promiscuity and, and passion and perversion. But whenever people are allowed to do that, anyone who stands up and goes, uh, that's not what love is, they're in, they're in the culture's sights at that point. And that's exactly what happened to Daniel. Anyone who refuses to go along with this false tolerance must be dealt with. That's what happened to Daniel. Now, that's also what happened, if you want to go on a little journey with me, 600 years uh, after Daniel, that's what happened to the first Christians. And we know this, not just because the New Testament tells us, sometimes I think I was reading secular historians this week who were like, the first Christians probably weren't even persecuted. It probably wasn't even that bad. Christians love to play the victim and they love to play that card. And they probably were just bad people. So they deserved the, they were probably just criminals. They probably really did burn Rome. They probably just were guilty of arson. Like you, I read a lot of this on academic websites to explain away or, or, or excuse these claims of persecution against Christians. But listen, you don't even have to believe the New Testament to know that the first Christians were persecuted by Rome. Roman government officials owned up to it and they were not ashamed of it. They were totally cool with it, all right? And it's all out there. 
Okay, there was a Roman historian named Tacitus who absolutely hated Christians. He called Christianity a pernicious superstition that needs to be stamped out. And Tacitus uh, uh, wrote this around 100. It was exactly 109 AD. Very, very early source here outside of the Bible. And this is what he said about the first generation of Christians. He said, the emperor Nero falsely accused and executed the most ex- uh, with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians who were infamous for their abominations. The originator of the name Christ was executed as a criminal by the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. And though repressed, this destructive superstition erupted again, not only through Judea, which is the origin of this evil, but also through the city of Rome, to which all that is horrible and shameful floods together and is celebrated. Therefore, first those were seized who admitted their faith, and then using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much for the crime of burning the city, but for the hatred of the human race. Why were the Christians persecuted? Was it for their religion? Uh, Maybe. Was it for burning down the city? Absolutely not. It was because they were deemed hateful by a culture that had redefined love. It says it right here. They had hatred for the human race. After And perishing, uh, they were additionally made into sports. They were killed by dogs by having the hides of beasts attached to them, or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame. And when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Nero gave his own gardens for this spectacle and performed a circus game in the habit of a charioteer mixing with the plebs or driving about the race course, even though they were clearly guilty and merited being made the most recent example of the consequences of crime, people began to pity these sufferers. So uh, in the next part of, of this book, Tacitus goes on to describe the rise of Christianity as a result of people pitying these Christians who refused to renounce their faith. What you have to understand about Roman persecution is that we're a Roman official here today. They they would say it wasn't about Christian religious beliefs. They would say we gave the Christians every opportunity to avoid being fed to the lions, to avoid being beheaded and martyred. We gave them every opportunity. All they had to do, in fact, we have evidence that various emperors gave edicts to their governors saying, don't execute Christians without first giving them the opportunity to make one sacrifice to one of our gods. That's all it takes. You don't have to renounce faith in your God. Just make one sacrifice to one of our gods and we're good. There's amnesty. There's grace there. Only if you take this deal. And we know that many early Christians in the Roman Empire took the deal. A lot of the early Christian writings talked about the the brand of Christians who took the deal and then came back to the church after taking the deal and they had to work out those issues because the ones that didn't take the deal were like, what's up, man? (laughs) The ones that had were like, we're sorry. But once you took the deal, we, we know this too, you were given a certificate saying you took the deal. And so when they came around and did their, you know, SWAT team raids on the churches and Christian homes, you had your certificate, don't kill me today. I took the deal. And if you didn't, you were vulnerable. So there were practical reasons to take the deal, so to speak, and many did, in fact. It's understandable, but most did not, which is unfathomable. I think about the things that I allow to stand between me and a a fervent faith in Jesus. It looks a lot less like a guillotine and a Colosseum packed with bloodthirsty Romans. It looks a lot more like 
pajamas <laughs> and uh, laziness and video games and, and lust and all kinds of other things, petty little things that I allow to stand between me and a full and vibrant trusting faith in God. So the testimony of the first Christians who stood true and held fast, even in the face of unimaginable pressure to comply. It's truly a miracle. It is a testimony to me. I was going to share a story of one Christian named Perpetua. I'm a little short on time. Just go home and Google Perpetua, all right, and, uh, and learn about this early, early Christian woman and a wealthy Roman citizen woman who stood strong. Her name, again, Perpetua, and she lived around 200 AD. Incredible faith in God that mirrored Daniel's faith in God, even as Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Just like Perpetua and the early other Christians refused to compromise their faith in order to blend into the culture around them, Daniel refused to compromise his as well. And as King Darius sealed the door, essentially sealing Daniel's fate, nothing changed within Daniel because Daniel knew this God of his. And Daniel knew that this God wasn't just kind and loving and, and nice. This God was strong and powerful and mighty. This God was capable of closing even the mouths of lions if he wanted to. And he did. That's exactly what happened. Daniel emerged from the lion's den unscathed the next day because this God showed up and shut up those lions' mouths. A miracle, wonderful, amazing, great. But what you have to understand is even if God had chosen not in his sovereignty not to show up and close those lions' mouths that night, Nothing about Daniel's faith would have changed because Daniel's faith in God was not conditional upon his appraisal of God's behavior. Daniel's faith in God was, was predicated on God's identity and his faithfulness and his truth. And nothing was going, nothing circumstantial was going to change that for Daniel because Daniel understood that there's more going on with this life and this existence than just the few decades, the whisper in the wind, the blink of an eye that we have on this earth with these bodies. There's something more we're living for. And even if things get hard or painful or difficult in this life, there's something more, better, higher, and longer to live for. Daniel knew that, and that's why he stood strong. Now, I know a lot of uh, Christians and uh, Christians who used to be like me, right? Christians who had this idea of Jesus that's just partial. Uh, the Jesus who agrees with you on everything. You know, if your Jesus agrees with, if he has the same ideas you have, then you've really got to ask yourself if you're following Jesus or just remaking him in your image. And the thing I really loved about the Jesus I was raised with was how much he was into me. He really liked me. <laughs> he never found anything wrong with me. That's what I liked most about him. And sometimes when you're living that brand of Christianity, it's easy to look at Christians who say, persecution, persecution, and, and just roll your eyes and say, Maybe you don't play the victim card. Maybe Christians shouldn't act like they're cutting off all our heads anymore. And on the one hand, I get that. They're not. Hallelujah. 
Praise God, God bless America. They're not cutting off our heads anymore. It's awesome. However, I will also say with all the love in my heart that if you claim to be following Jesus, if you claim to be a Christian, the full and vibrant faith in Christ and the world around you, this fallen, broken, sick and sinful world never finds anything disagreeable about you, never finds anything wrong with you or about your worldview as they know it, as they see it every day. And maybe you need to ask yourself, is this really a full and vibrant faith in Jesus that I have? Or am I just going along with syncretism? Am I just taking Jesus into this blended together, false tolerant worldview that I've been pressured into? Because true Christian faith To truly follow Jesus, it always means you standing apart, you standing out, you looking a little different, talking a little different, acting, drinking, uh, having sex a little different than maybe the world around you would. It always means uh, a distinct existence that the world's not always going to find uh, that agreeable. That's always what it's meant. That's what it meant for Jesus. That's what it meant for Daniel, Perpetua, and for us. Now, you may not be faced with any kind of uh, guillotine or or any kind of uh, awful persecution like Christians have in the past, but there will come a time where if you're authentically and fully following Jesus, you will have to choose between being accepted and being faithful, between keeping all your friends happy and being faithful between doing what's easy and doing what's right. Because the world we're living in is redefining terms every day. And God has given us the freedom, the agency to choose to go along with those redefinitions and accept them or to live differently. Now, Daniel gives us, I think, a model of what this looks like because the one thing that concerns me about this message is you're gonna hear me giving you a license to go out into the world and be some kind of a, a holier-than-thou Christian jerk who has all the answers. Everybody's wrong but you. Somebody once asked St. Augustine or Augustine, how you say it, what the three most important Christian qualities are. And he said, humility, humility, and humility. Christians, the way of Christ is always the way of humility. So when we look at Daniel as an example, we, we see, I think, a pathway that will help us to toe the line sometimes. There's such, there's such a thin line between Christian and crazy. I think we, we need to know where that line is so that we're fighting the right battles instead of all the wrong ones. So when we look at Daniel, the first thing that I notice about Daniel is that he is faithful and devoted even behind closed doors. Daniel's not putting on a show for anyone. He doesn't care who's watching. In fact, he'd rather no one watch him be faithful to God. That's why he went up to his room and prayed in secret. The people that, were, that had a problem with Daniel didn't have any uh, reason to uh, arrest him in public. He wasn't praying with his hands raised like a Pharisee in, in front of everybody. He did it in his room. They had to go find him there. So what does it look like for us to be devoted behind closed doors, not just when people are watching, but only when it's us and God? Who are you when no one's watching but God? 
The second thing we see um, from Daniel is that he was blameless in the eyes, not only of God, but blameless in the eyes of his neighbors. You remember in that passage we read about 75 minutes ago <laughs> that where Daniel, they couldn't find anything wrong with him? This is my growing edge right here. This is my weakness. I've given too many people too much ammunition to assassinate my character through my temper or my choice of words or my need to win the argument or whatever we do as Christians, you know, online or in person or whatever. Daniel didn't give anyone any of that ammunition. If they were gonna assassinate his character, they were gonna have to make it up as they went along. So the New Testament, Paul is always, he's always writing to Christians saying, be blameless. And that is to say that in your dealings with people, there's no room for sanctimonious, holier-than-thouism. It's just, it's real love that we're trying to show the world. Real kindness, not this bastardized version that they've redefined. Real love, real kindness. And when we do that, we create a better testimony for ourselves. Third and finally, we see Daniel in his time claiming victory even in defeat. There was nothing more defeating, I would imagine, being hurled into a den of hungry lions. But even then, Daniel walked with a posture of someone who was victorious, not because of his own merits, not because he deserved to win, because he knew that God, in his day or in the day to come, God would be victorious. So even when the world is beating you down, even when you feel like nothing's going right, when you feel like all hope is lost, how do you walk with your head held high as someone claiming victory? Because today, tomorrow, or the next, God will have his victory so we can live victoriously. I'll wrap with these words of Jesus, uh, Jesus's brother, James, who wrote to the Christians who were being chased down by the Romans in real time. He said, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. You're going, you're already being faced with choices to surrender and compromise and go with the flow and conform and comply with the ways of this world. Jesus calls you out to something higher and better and even something harder. And when you resist the ways of this world that are drawing everybody in together under this banner of false tolerance and love, when you resist, it will always come at a cost. But there is a crown. There will always be a cost in this life, but there is a crown and it is eternal and it is worth far more than any price you may have to pay for your noncompliance to the ways of this world with all the love in your heart, all the love of Jesus Christ. Resist anything in this world that's not holy, that's not godly, that's not true anything that flies in the face of God's good order and design and, and desire for his people, for his life on this earth. Do not go along with it. There will be a price to pay. but There is a crown of glory awaiting us. Would you pray with me? God, give us courage. We pray for courage and clarity, Lord. Clarity to see the difference between the temptations of this fallen and broken world and um, the beauty and holiness 
of the world you're calling us to. God, it's not easy to stand out. We would rather just blend in. We'd rather just keep all our friends and keep our family happy and, and not be crazy religious people. Lord, that's not what we're here for. But we know you call us to something higher and greater. That you meet us where we are, but you never leave us that way. That's what love really is. It's always guiding us toward who we really are, toward our truest identity, which is in you and in nothing less than you. And so I pray for the courage to never settle for anything less than finding our identity in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.